Thanks for coming up. All right. Um, does anybody know what this is? It's a phone. You know your history. Excellent. Yeah. This is, this is a telephone. You had a cord and everything. Nowadays, you don't always see people using a phone like this. What do you usually see them using? You see them usually using a phone that looks like this, right? You know, sometimes it even flips. But yeah, we can call people on a phone. Maybe sometimes grandma and grandpa's house has one of these. But, um, you know, you, you dial the number and then you'd wait to see if they answer. Sometimes they're not always home, right? And you have to leave a message, right? Um, but if you're in trouble, what number do you dial? Only when you're in trouble, what number do you dial? Do you know? Yeah, 911, so you press 911. And it would connect you to the police officers or the fire department, and you can tell if there's something going on, if there's something amiss or trouble. But only... Yeah, yeah. So moms like to call on the phone, dads like to call on the phone. And how do we, how do we call God, though? With a telephone? Well, we could try, but I don't... What's God's phone number? It's good. It's a good question. What's the maybe one way we could call God, like on a telephone? Do you guys know, Jackson? The Bible, okay, so, well, God would talk to us through the Bible, right? So this is where God speaks to us in the Bible. So we had first Bible, I think it was last Sunday or two Sundays ago, and, and first graders got their Bible, and this is where God promises to speak to us. But now, how do we talk to God? How do we talk to God? What's something that we do on Sundays, maybe before... Yeah, what's, what's like a spiritual telephone? Can you put your hands like this? Can you put your hands like this? Yeah, what are we doing if... Yeah, we pray to God. That's exactly right. And this is how we get to talk to God. Now, God doesn't say he's going to talk to us when we pray. He talks to us through the Bible. How about Yeah, yeah, was it sad? But... Yeah, with Jesus. Yeah, when dark out, God brings the stars out to help light up the sky a little bit. That's excellent. And we can always talk to Jesus if we're scared or if we're happy. Or... Yeah, if there are scary monsters or anything, we can pray to Jesus to help us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and God brings out the sun during the daytime. This is excellent. This is excellent. Um, let's let's pray. Let's pray and thank and thank Jesus for bringing out the stars in the sky, and also the sun, and also for all the things He's done for us. Okay, let's pray. We'll fold our hands, and you can repeat after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, and the congregation can join too. Dear Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the Bible. And thank you for letting us talk to you. Thank you for sending Jesus and the forgiveness he gives us and one day bringing us home to heaven. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God I'd like to share with you today is the first lesson for the Sunday, recorded in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 11. You see the text, and also as I read the reference, you can follow along. 
Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time, he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I've committed my cause. This is the word of our Lord. Join with me in prayer. Lord, our Savior and refuge, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, may they horrify Satan, edify your people, and glorify your name. To you we pray, O Christ, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Ever been driving down the highway and you're in the passing lane and you're passing a particular big rig hauling a kind of peculiar looking trailer with a very specific kind of cargo? And as you pass by, you might look and you see some eyes peering out from the slotted openings in the side. And you look again and maybe you make out a face. Oh, is that a pig? Cow, cool. And then you think twice, a little deeper, and you kind of wonder, hmm, where are they headed? You see, this is a matter of dead livestock riding. They're probably being hauled off to the slaughterhouse. And have you ever maybe thought about that? You know, do the animals, do they really have any clue of where they're going? An inkling of what lies ahead? And maybe it's good they don't, right? Because we don't want our steaks to be tough and we want our bacon to be nice and fatty. We don't want to stress the animals any further as they're welcomed to the slaughterhouse. Have you ever thought about church that way? Thinking of the slaughterhouses. I know in the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle, the temple, there's obvious similarities. In fact, the priest and the priestly order back then, they served as worship leader and butcher. And, well, when it was time to go to the house of the Lord, welcome to the slaughterhouse. Now, now what if you were Jeremiah here? In our reading, he's not going to the temple to offer sacrifice. Instead, he feels like some of that livestock in that, that cattle hauler. He says he feels like a, a gentle lamb being led to the slaughter. Jeremiah was on the verge of being martyred for his message and his faith in the Lord. And it was his own people in his own hometown who were threatening him. But they weren't his words. As we find out in his prophecy, these were the words the Holy Spirit put in his heart and on his lips for him to utter against his people. So it begs the question, why is God speaking against his chosen people? Well, they did it again, didn't they? Again, they chose to abandon the Lord and to turn away from the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they chose to follow cattle gods like Baal. They forsook the covenant God had made. 
And again and again, this has happened. Not that this was the first, not the second, not the third, but this seems to be a cyclical pattern in the lives of God's people. God comes, he, he reestablishes and reminds them of his promises and his, his faithfulness. They, for a generation or two, follow the Lord, and then they abandon him. And what does God do? He sends prophets to preach repentance, to, to turn those hearts back towards him, to welcome him, them back into God's love and his refuge. Often that message falls on hearts that didn't hear it. Hard hearts, deaf ears. Then what does God do? Kind of ups the ante. He, he disciplines his people. In, in fact, he, many cases he hands them over to his enemies who literally did slaughter many of them and enslave the rest. In fact, Jeremiah is one of the many prophets who is warning and foretelling about Babylonian and Assyrian exile. And exile was a rather nasty tool of war. In exile, you know, the conquered country, it was emptied of many, if not all of its people. They were deported and hauled off to a foreign land they'd never Never seen, never to be seen again. They were cut off from the land of the living. Sound familiar? Yeah, many Israelites killed in such battles. The rest fell victim, rape and pillage. But you know, there was one time when in exile, after many years, the cycle repeated. The people remembered God's promises. They called out and, and begged for his deliverance. And God, he heard them, and he answered. And, and he did the unthinkable. He actually delivered them out of exile, brought them back to the very land he promised, which is something in ancient history that was never accomplished, only when the Lord intervenes. And he renewed that covenant. Basically, I will be your God, you will be my people. And the cycle began anew. The people followed the Lord, they ghosted him. Rinse and repeat. And here's Jeremiah in the midst of that cycle. And he's betrayed by the very people from his own hometown of Anathoth, part of the tribe of Benjamin, part of where the religious and spiritual leaders came from. So he was familiar with them. They were familiar with him. But it's interesting that many of the religious leaders even, let alone the people who heard, they did not appreciate his message of law and gospel. And if you look a little bit earlier around the context of this, this reading, the Lord, he refers to his people as a once thriving olive tree with vibrant, beautiful fruit. And it's interesting how those once beautiful people became so ugly. That once flowering olive tree wanted to cut down Jeremiah his tree, his message, the man and the message. They wanted to cut him off from the land of the living. They wanted to utterly brutalize him so deeply that his memory, his name, his message would be wiped from history. Welcome to the slaughterhouse, Jeremiah. And that's how he felt. A gentle little ewe lamb led to the slaughter. Completely caught flat-footed. He had no clue the people were conspiring against him. And yet, even though he reminds me of the livestock in one of those bull carts, he spoke up. This gentle lamb did put up a fight. In fact, the Lord fought for him. It was the Lord who revealed the plot against his life to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was angry. 
He even says so. Let me see your vengeance on them, Lord Almighty. And I have to wonder, this was a hard message, difficult words. But these were messages and words spoken out of love spurned and friendship foiled. These are the words of a broken man betrayed, the words of a man who looked to God for refuge and now for retribution. And as much as these words may have been hard for Jeremiah to utter, in one sense, it's understandable, but it still hurt. This was his hometown, his family perhaps, friends and neighbors. He loved these people, but he loved the Lord more. And he knew in his heart of hearts that God is a God of mercy and grace. And God wants people to repent. He wants them to turn back so he can welcome them into his family to be renewed and to be restored. And that's why he sent the prophets. You know, it's never the Lord's desire for people to fall into the hands of an angry God. His first and best and proper work is to love and to forgive. That's what the Lord wants to do, to have all welcomed by grace through faith, to receive the gift of forgiveness and to enter into his promise of eternal salvation and life. But sometimes what God wants to do is not what he needs to do. Sometimes he needs to bring wrath against stubborn people who reject his grace. And this is what the church reformers often refer to as the Holy Spirit's alien work, if you will, his weird work, the foreign work of God. He wants people to repent. He sends his messengers. And as this was as difficult and foreign of words for Jeremiah to utter, his imprecatory lament was understandably necessary. You see, God's law also needs to be proclaimed with truth and boldness. And how did many of the people respond? They wanted to kill the messenger. God's word always elicits a response. That's truth, and this is nothing new. Even our Lord experienced that in his own ministry. How he spoke against the people in his day, those who conspired against him. End of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what they started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? And here comes the message. Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. You will flog others in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. Hard words, but words spoken out of love because Jesus was warning these people, even though he took such displeasure in their hypocrisy, and also a warning out of love for his own disciples that their ministry in his name would often seem like a welcome to the slaughterhouse. Apostles martyred, blood shed, bodies brutalized for the sake of the gospel. Satan, hard at work then in the hearts of people, trying to turn and tempt them away from the Lord and against his word and against those he sends as messengers. 
And that same Satan is still hard at work against the church today. He's still hard at work trying to turn the hearts of people against God's word and against those he sends to speak it. Welcome to the slaughterhouse, pastors and parishioners. Pastors, as apostles and prophets, called to proclaim the word of God. And sadly, there are times when the truth shall be known and the truth shall tick some people off. But what is a faithful pastor to do? To be such a limp noodle or pathetic people pleaser that he loves people straight into condemnation? He can't. Not in good conscience, not in accordance with the word, not even in accordance with the promises he makes at his own ordination. He cannot gloss over or ignore what God says, even if it might make some people uncomfortable. And instead of being thankful for such courage and boldness, sometimes we're tempted to get angry. Maybe we hear a pastor teach and proclaim what God's word says and it pricks our heart and conscience and sinful pride gets in the way. And instead of righteous anger against our own sin there, we become self-righteous in our imprecatory laments against God's ambassadors. And it goes the other way, too. Sometimes a pastor in weakness, in a moment of weakness, because, you know, even the, the best of men are still just men at best. Maybe in frustration he might wish God in a moment to bring fire and brimstone on that council meeting. Ah. And in those moments, we're sinning. We, we do not hold preaching and teaching of his word in good hearts, and we're not gladly hearing and learning it. And we sin so much on a daily basis. Every one of us deserves a one-way ticket in God's cattle hauler to the slaughterhouse. And there at his slaughterhouse, blood is demanded. He told the, the Israelites that that the life of an animal is in its blood, and blood is to be accounted for, and the offering for the sacrifice and payment is blood. And so the required animals were shed of their blood, and the offerings were made. And on that great day of atonement, man, the temple in all Jerusalem was a bloody mess as those sacrifices were offered again and again and again to point ahead to the one who would bring us at one with peace in God in his presence, who would pay the price and ransom us and redeem us and forgive us. It is necessary to have bloodshed, but not mine, not yours, not some animal. No, as, as Peter learned, and he, he records for us, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, the sacrifice, the slaughter. It has already been made and paid in Christ Jesus. He is that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The high priest is our sacrifice, and by him we are saved. And so what the Israelites conspired against Jeremiah, the religious leaders carried out against Christ. These words, I don't know if Jeremiah knew the full impact as he spoke them, but these were prophecies foreshadowed and fulfilled, because these very words of, I, of Jeremiah were reflected in another prophet, Isaiah. 
who talked about the suffering servant, Jesus. You know those words. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, unlike Jeremiah. But he was led off like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. My people. Welcome to the slaughterhouse, precious Jesus. The holiness and wrath of a holy God is not poured out on the people we think deserve it, who oppose us. No, no welcome to the slaughterhouse to which the Lamb of God must go to have his body broken, his blood shed, so that the wrath of God might be poured out on him and that the love and kindness of a Savior God would be showered upon us and if you read a little further, that's the answer the Lord gives to Jeremiah. And while it's understandable, yes, in one sense, that Jeremiah speaks in this righteous anger against those who reject the promise of the Savior, it's also very important for us to remember and to not forget this. Let us not get so distracted by the injustice of this world or by the schemes of the evil one, or by the trials and challenges we face, that we forget that the Lord's first and best work in our lives is to ever cleanse our hands and purify our hearts in the blood of that Savior, so that we more clearly reflect the words of James as we heard them. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So welcome to the slaughterhouse, called St. Paul's Lutheran Church. And many of you were slaughtered at that baptismal font as your pastor poured water and spoke the word and you were born again, adopted in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you were there with mom and dad and the pastor and maybe some witnesses and a congregation to also bear testimony. But Martin Luther was there too. In his words, baptism now means that the old Adam in us should be drowned by daily repentance and contrition, to be slaughtered so that a new man may daily arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. And, and St. Paul was at your baptism in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in death through baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life in baptism, slaughtered and restored in the blood of Christ, marked on head and heart with the sign of the cross to signify that we are welcomed and adopted as children of God through the blood of the, the crucified and risen. And you know that slaughter continues whenever his word is read and proclaimed and taught and meditated and pondered upon. And that law, it convicts us and it slaughters that sinful pride and that gospel message renews us 
and restores us in living hope in our Savior. At the Lord's table, slaughter again. Not that we offer our Lord in some unbloody sacrifice over and over, but no, there the living and active word of Christ is flawless in its promise as his body and blood touch your lips as you receive the bread and wine. There the Lord inviting us to feast on him who once was dead and lives and rules eternally. And, and there as you receive again and again his love and promise, I forgive you. Your doubts and fears are slaughtered, killed, as you are comforted by that gospel of forgiveness. St. Paul's, God's slaughterhouse for us. But unlike the animals loaded up in some cattle cart, we're not going off to Oscar Mayer to be turned into tube stakes. No, there's a different destiny for us, God's eternal paradise, where we will be seated at his banquet to sing his praise in unending glory. And that really is the point of the gospel reading we heard, where Jesus took that little child and gathered them all around those in his midst. Back then, children were kind of considered, if they were unwanted or orphaned, considered to be left alone, to just be abandoned, to die. That seems unthinkable. And as, as horrible as that might think to us, that's really not even the point. But Jesus' point with that little child is he's took looking at the humility we need, the absolute hopelessness and hope that we all have and need in Christ. You see, without Christ, we are lost. But in Christ, we find a welcome, a rich welcome into the family of God. And I often wonder, as I hear those words from Mark's gospel, if Jesus were physically present here, in addition to a little child, who else would he hold? Would it be that person struggling with an addiction? Would it be that, that young woman who, who was just burdened with guilt and shame because she considered an abortion? Or that successful, self-assured business person who thinks they got it all, but deep inside, they're terrified of losing it all? Or that family who lost everything, ravaged in some violent act of nature? Would he hold up and hold on to a, an Afghani refugee for that matter? Someone without a home, hopeless, lost. Would he, would he hold up and hold on to you and me? Yes, because in the end, all are welcome to this slaughterhouse where our sin nature is killed and our new creation rises forth. This is where we hear the gospel of Christ. This is where we come back to hear Christ crucified and risen, and we find welcome by the God who loves the world so much he gave that son, not to condemn, but to save the world. And welcome to God's slaughterhouse, where we, as part of the body of Christ, we daily slay our sin nature, and rise up to live and to love and to serve all the world's little ones in his name. And recognizing that in the face of all the world's least and last is where we often most clearly see the face of Christ. And we needed to be killed in order to live in that way. Slain, to be saved, to love and serve as Jesus loves and serves us. Little ones, loved by God, welcome to his slaughterhouse, one and all. Amen. As we say our thanks to God in our use of all the things he's given us in the realms of our time, 
our talents, our treasures, the truth of his word, the temples of our bodies. We focus our thoughts for our stewardship this morning on God's word to us um, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, where he speaks of um, not just loving our neighbor in uh, words, but also in actions because of the love God has given to us. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has not pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. This is God's word. 